Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, the debate over sexual orientation and gender identity hits the streets. Across the country, from St. John's to Victoria and here in Ottawa, thousands of protesters speak out against the teaching of sexual orientation and gender identity in schools and are met with counter-protests. Coming up, we'll speak to the Minister for Women and Gender Equality, Marcy Ian. Also... People can read into that what they want. Canada is a safe country. The government of India can explain why they're doing that. India is warning its citizens against coming to Canada. It's the latest salvo in a diplomatic row after the Prime Minister accuses Indian agents of killing a Canadian citizen here in Canada. We'll examine the fallout. And the new political party hoping to take centre ice. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. It's called the One Million March for Children, a national day of action with demonstrations taking place right across the country today. You're looking at the march that took place in Ottawa and organizers say on their website their mission is to advocate for the well-being and safety of children. Now at issue are lessons and school policies on sexual orientation and gender identity, but their protest was met by several counter-protests, with the Prime Minister taking to social media to say the following quote, Transphobia, homophobia, and biphobia have no place in this country. We strongly condemn this hate and its manifestations. We stand united, he says, in support of 2S LGBTQI plus Canadians across the country. You are valid and are valued. Well, we're now joined by Marcy Ian, the Minister for Women, Gender, Equality, and Youth. Uh, Minister Marcy, thank you for being with us this evening. It's great to be with you, Michael. Listen, I want to begin with your assessment of the protest on Parliament Hill and really cities right across the country today. You know, some people are out there protesting the teaching of sexual orientation and gender identity in schools. Uh, others are talking about their opposition to gender-affirming surgery. Others uh, still are talking about parental rights to be informed. How do you understand the concerns being expressed by the people at these protests? I'm a parent, Michael. I'm a mom. I've got two kids and I understand very well what it means to want to be a part of your children's lives, be a part of the things that impact them every day. At the same time, it is so important that we center kids right now, center trans and queer kids right now because they're vulnerable. And I think, in fact, I know every parent wants what's best for their children. And so really, I think if we put the emphasis where it should be on children and the most vulnerable children in our society, I might add, then that's where we get to the discussions, that's where we move forward. Okay, let's build on that a bit, if you will, because what is the harm? What is the harm if you take these teachings out of schools uh, or have parents informed about preferred names or pronouns? Why would that be such a bad thing? Please do not take it from me. Take it from the kids that I've heard from. I've traveled throughout this country for the better part of two years 
and more extensively this summer. And I have talked to a lot of trans kids, a lot of queer kids, and they talk to me about their fear. They talk to me about being bullied. They talk to me about being able to be themselves. And that is important here. That's what they tell me. And that's why it's important to center them in these conversations. Um, the other thing that I want to add is there are stats. And the stats are rife right now when it comes to hatred. We know what those are when it comes to the 2SLGBTQI uh, plus community. But with kids and trans kids in particular, they are five times more likely to take their lives. And yet, there are also stats that show the reverse, that when those kids are allowed to be themselves, when they're seen and heard for who they are, that suicidal ideation goes down. Okay, you mentioned the summer and being in consultation through the summer. And we also know that during that same time period, your government rolled out money for pride groups right across the country. It was for security because there were many organizers of Pride who were worried about potential violence, worried that participants would be attacked uh, by, by outside forces. Do you see today's protests tied to that violence in any way, whether directly or indirectly? It's interesting about what we have seen today, Michael, because what we've seen are, yes, protests, but we've seen so many more people coming out in support of trans and queer kids. And I have to tell you, that gives me a level of hope because that means we're at a place where we can maybe have some important conversations. And these conversations need to continue. Um, this is not a time to be quiet. This is not a time to politicize this issue. This is a time to listen to kids who are the most vulnerable and listen to what they need and act on that. Okay, okay, but what do you actually say to parents, uh, Minister, who, who, who don't harbor ill will to the 2S LGBTQIA plus community, but, but, but essentially want to be informed about what's happening in their children's schools? Mm -hmm. I say I completely understand where you are. And those are parents who put kids first. And I would say continue please to do that, but look at kids that are disproportionately impacted by a rise in hate where we are today. Look at kids who, in not being themselves and not able to be valued uh, in certain ways, um, take their lives. I've said before that this is a matter of life and death, and it is. And what brings me great hope today, Michael, is that we saw so much support, so much support for, you know, the trans, the trans and queer community. You know, I, I'm wondering about your government going forward here. Do, do you see your government playing a greater role in perhaps fostering better understanding or, or more conversations on these issues for Canadians? Look at the conversation we're having right now. It's conversations like this, um, continuing conversations like this. It is consulting with, with kids and the organizations that serve them across this country and understanding what they need. I see it as a continuation of the work that we're already doing. Minister Marcy Ian, uh, thank you for making the time this evening. Thank you so much, Michael. Appreciate it.
India is warning its citizens against coming to Canada, telling travelers and visitors about, quote, growing anti-Indian activities and politically condoned hate crimes. It's the latest escalation in a diplomatic row after Prime Minister Trudeau alleged a link between government agents of India and the murder of a Sikh community leader in Surrey, B.C. earlier this year. Here's how the public safety minister, Dominic Leblanc, reacted to the travel advisory. I took note of India's... uh... Uh, travel advisory. People can read into that what they want. Canada is a safe country. The government of India can explain why they're doing that. Um, what we're doing is ensuring that there's a, an appropriate criminal investigation into these circumstances. And I think that, as we said yesterday, commenting further will prevent the RCMP from doing the important work they have to do. Well, joining us now is Stephanie Lovitz, Ottawa reporter with the Toronto Star. Robert Fife, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Welcome to the both of you. Thanks for having us. So listen, we're, we're talking about the travel ban today, but of course this is in addition to the reaction that we got from India's you know, external affairs ministry saying that the, the statement, the allegations made by the Prime Minister earlier this week were quote, un, uh, quote unquote absurd. So, so how reliable is this intelligence that the Prime Minister is leaning on that, that ties essentially agents of India to, to the death of Mr. Najjar? It, it has to be reliable enough that the Prime Minister has gone ahead and done what he's done, which has set the cat amongst the pigeons, not just politically here in the country. But this has set off, there are global repercussions happening now about what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is alleging the government of India has done. I mean, we're hearing about it from the Americans, from the Australians, from the British. And there is such an international furor over this arising that if there wasn't enough there, you have to wonder why did he drop the bomb in the first place. Yeah, good question. And Bob, what do, you, what do you make? What's your assessment of the information, the intelligence that the Prime Minister is relying on here? Well, I don't know what the intelligence is. Nobody knows what the intelligence is because they haven't shared it. But uh, it has to be serious enough that the government sent the CSIS director to India to... Uh, discuss this and share this intelligence with um, uh, their Indian counterparts and the National Security Advisor for the Prime Minister Jody Thomas also went twice to India to talk to them about it and they uh, then discussed this or shared this intelligence with our Five Eyes allies which is the United States, Great Britain and Australia and New Zealand and maybe other allies as well so it's got to be something that's serious enough that they believe India was involved in this Um, But uh, what exactly, I I don't know. I mean, the Indians have said this is the kind of intelligence that is is as reliable as George Bush uh, saying that their administration saying there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and it turned out not to be true. Mm -hmm. I think there should be an obligation on part of the government uh, to release this evidence or what they believe this intelligence is. Uh, at some point, because if you remember what happened with the uh, in Turkey, with the when the Saudi hit team went in and killed uh, Khashoggi, that uh, they were able to release all this intelligence. So if it's there, I think they should they should re- uh, re- release it to the to the to the public uh, without a compromising the police investigation or human resources or however they got at this. Yeah, you, you know what's, <clears throat> what I find interesting is the language that the prime minister used because he talked about when he stood up in the house, he, he didn't say we know that agents of India did this. He said there are credible allegations that possibly tie, you know, agents of the Indian government to to this death. Uh, Talk to us about the language, Stephanie. Why do you think the Prime Minister was being so cautious if they truly believe this happened? 
Well, the, what the liberal government is saying, right, is that there is an ongoing criminal investigation at play. There are you know, police officers in the lower mainland of British Columbia, the RCMP, investigating this murder. And if the government is going to come out and drop evidence, you know, does that compromise the criminal investigation underway? It's also sort of shades of this debate that was really consuming the House of Commons in the spring about Chinese foreign interference and this question about when does intelligence become evidence and the distinction between the two. And so by threading the needle there a little bit, it seemed as though Prime Minister Trudeau was echoing some of the debates that were being had back in the spring about shedding some sunlight when you think you have intelligence, when you think something points to something, you need to bring it forward, bring it into the public domain so that people can know that this thing is happening. To get up on the floor of the House of Commons and flat out accuse um, Indi the Indian government of killing a Canadian citizen that would be so explosive, uh, I think, that you have to couch it, especially when, if there is no smoking gun, you can lay on the table. You need to be pretty careful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Bob, what do you make of that point? Because, yes, certainly uh, the, the Trudeau government was under the microscope earlier this year vis-a-vis uh, -vis China interference. Now we're talking yeah, about Yeah, but this India. was not information they wanted out. Yeah. This was uh, information that was provided by national security people who were very frustrated that the intelligence that they had on Chinese foreign interference in the Canadian elections uh, were being ignored by the uh, top people in the government. In this particular instance, the Prime Minister is the one who's saying, we have this intelligence and it shows that India was involved in killing a Canadian citizen. If you're going to make that kind of explosive allegation in the House of Commons and as the leader of the country, you have an obligation at some point to put something on the table that we can all say, yeah, that looks pretty, it looks to me like they were really involved in this. Yeah, yeah, but you know, to, to the point that Stephanie's making about, you know, be China earlier in the year being in mind, it seems this is almost an inelegant response to, 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 to a different matter altogether. But you know, can we talk about the impact here on yeah. Canada-India relations? Of course, historically, we're allies, uh, historically, both part of the, the Commonwealth, and yet we're now in this diplomatic route, if you will. How deep will this, uh, impact be? How will this affect our relationship with India oh, going forward? We're in the deep freeze on this and we're going to be in the deep freeze for a long time, perhaps if there's a change in government. Under uh, Stephen Harper, there were good relations with Indian government. But Mr. Trudeau came in, the, the, particularly the Modi government, has believed that uh, Trudeau was far more too sympathetic to, uh, to uh, seek uh, Sikhs in this country who were supportive of a, of a separate um, um, uh, uh, homeland in the, in the Punjab. The Canadian government has, does not support this, by the way. The, the government doesn't support that, but there's been this sense that they have not been willing to share intelligence with uh, Indian, um, um, Indian intelligence agencies on some of these people who are promoting uh, separatism in, in the Punjab, and they haven't stopped the flow of money. And so there have been very, very bad relations to begin with, but it looked like it was on the, we were actually over that hump. We were going to have uh, free trade negotiations which were being fast-tracked on September 1st. We now know the reason why the government hit pause on that. 
And then uh, the Canadian Trade Mission, which uh, Trade Minister Mary Ning was supposed to lead on October 9th, was also put on pause. We now know why that has happened. We've kicked out the head of the Foreign Intelligence a Agency in the High Commission here, and they've retaliated um, by kicking out a Canadian diplomat, the CISA station chief in New Delhi, and now they're having issued a travel uh, uh, advisory. Uh, you know, this, is, this, has got, this could really unravel here. And um, it's, it's, it's going to take some delicate diplomatic skills on the part of this prime minister not to let this thing completely go asunder. And we have our allies are not like they're not out there criticizing I India. Why? Because it's a very important country. It is a counterweight to China, which is the big worry that the United States and other Western countries have. And it's also a market of one billion people. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a we're in a real bind here, and I don't know how we're going to get out of it. Yeah, but you know, picking up on Bob's point, Stephanie, how important are other allies right now, like the United States, like Australia, the UK, in this row, uh, whether it's about supporting Canada's position or getting out of it to, to try to bring down the temperature? They're exceptionally important. I mean, they're, they're important in the sense that unless other nations band together to exert some degree of pressure on Prime Minister Modi in India to, to collaborate or cooperate, whatever it is the Liberal government is asking them to do, why would Prime Minister Modi listen to Justin Trudeau? They don't like each other. What is the incentive of, you know, on, the incentive on the point of view of the Indian government, why should they play nice on this one? I mean, international diplomatic norms would be the answer. The rule of law would be the answer. There are very good established mm -hmm. international treaties and all of these things to be the answer. But if Prime Minister Modi is not engaged and interested in playing ball with Justin Trudeau, maybe he'll think differently if Joe Biden gives him a call or Rishi Sunak from the UK gives him a call. You know, if there's pressure there, think about what happened with the two Michaels, just as, just as a correlate there, right? Um, and the way in which Canada really was able to muster up its, the allied nations to say to China, this is wrong, you should not do that. It came up all the time. Um, did that help in the end? Some degree of isolationism. Nobody can afford to isolate India, and nor can Canada. I mean, just from an immigration point of view alone, um, you know, India is the source is one of the top source countries for new immigrants into this country. Between 20 and 30 percent of all immigration to Canada last year came from India. It's Indian students that are you know coming to university campuses that are taking jobs. If Modi cuts off that flow of people to this country, that's catastrophic potentially for our economy. To say nothing of fertilizer, lentils, and all of these other products we provide. Um, so if Canada can't convince the allies to push a little bit on this, there's a lot at risk uh, for Canada in particular, but does that affect the self-interest of the U.S., of the U.K., of Australia, not in the same way that arbitrary detention on the part of China may have a similar implication? Mm -hmm. I mean, there may have been a way out of this if the Indian government had said, oh, uh, some rogue elements in the security service... Which has not been ruled did, out. Which, that has no, not been no, ruled and out it's I mean, that is, that's the one... Personally, that's the one thing that may be a way out of this, that Modi could say, oh, we've, look, we found out that rogue elements did this. This is unacceptable. We're going to deal with these people. But he's not doing that. He's digging in. Um, and so I don't know how this is going to be resolved. The prime minister was trying to dial it back a little bit uh, uh, yesterday when he was saying, look, we don't want to provoke. We don't want to escalate. Um, but if Modi... If Modi decides, you know, you put us in this bind, you publicly uh, said we were responsible for killing somebody, we're going to stick it to you. And that's where we're at. We just don't know where this is going to go, where it's, how it's going to unravel.
Well, we are watching it. Amazingly, we're just 48 hours since the announcement was made in, in, in the House Commons. So we'll keep watching uh, for now. Bob and Thanks. Stephanie, thank you for the thank time. Thank you. Well, there's a new political party hoping to make its presence known in the next federal election. Members call themselves the Canadian Future, a party that is an offshoot of centerized Canadians, a group of moderate Tories who tried to influence the last Conservative leadership contest. They now believe Liberals and New Democrats, along with Tories tired of Justin Trudeau, will find a home with them. Mr. Cardi, thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks for, so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Now, your party has I its roots with the, the centerized conservatives group. And after last year's leadership race, I take it you had to decide what to do with that energy. But why not apply that energy to having an internal debate with other conservatives? What is it about the current party that you cannot reconcile with? Well, first, centerized conservatives was existed for a few weeks and it then became centerized canadians because we heard lots of liberals even some new democrats and greens saying that they didn't feel that the current political main political parties were reflecting them in any way and the the thought of trying to attract people to go to party conventions or nominating conventions when you've got candidates that are espousing policies that are nostalgic to be polite about it in the case of the liberals who seem to continue to believe that throwing money at things solves problems without any sort of real plan uh, as long as it's got a nice comms package to top it off or the conservatives who appear to have just ceded the policy ground to some of the stranger people in the american social media sphere uh, and who are absolutely attracting lots of people the same way that mr trump attracts lots of people in the u.s those are not the people we're trying to go for here. We're not interested in talking about the World Economic Forum or uh, whether vaccines are invented by Bill Gates or some of the other uh, strange positions that the Conservative Party has inexplicably decided to adopt. Okay, so that's not what you're interested in. What is it then that your party will stand for? Right. Massive increase in our defense budget. We are facing a war in Ukraine that we have to win. It's an existential fight for democracy and Western civilization. We have to win that fight quickly because we have to prepare for the battle that the chief of our defense staff said in testimony before the commons last year that we are already at war with china and russia the difference is that they know it and we don't so we need to prepare for that that means building trade relationships with democracies moving to decouple from china through an explicit plan in this quickest period as possible because the chinese have said they're decoupling from us so it might be nice if we were actually ahead of them for a change and protected our own interests when it comes to things like dom on domestic policy we need to talk about immigration, saying that professional associations need to be given an extremely limited amount of time to guarantee that doctors and other medical professionals can come to Canada and have some path to get into an, into an OR or in front of patients in whatever capacity with an extremely limited amount of time, six months to a year maximum. And that is something that because we have parties that are somewhat beholden because they are connected to yeah, the people who have generally run our country, they don't want to talk about confronting the doctors because lots of the doctors are involved. Oh, okay. I talked to lots of, lots of younger doctors who really want to, want to see these changes because they're massively overburdened and know that people are not going to support public health care if we keep on paying 40 odd percent of our salaries and taxes and we can't actually see doctors. That is not a way to, to gain support for good social programs. Okay, let me jump in. So you mentioned a couple of things there, you, you, immigration, health care, uh, defense, if you will. Uh, and you think that is broad enough of an appeal enough to actually take votes away from liberals and new Democrats and conservatives included? Well, we did a poll earlier this year because we were, once we started to get pressure within the group that started off as saying we, we hope we don't have to have a political party. That's uh, the founder of the center. I said that that would be like 
know, having 338 root canals, having to start all those writing associations. In the months since, we've realized that there is one thing worse than having 338 root canals, and it's watching the liberals and conservatives continue to argue on TikTok about who can be more divisive and pushing people more to the extremes without offering any solutions. So we're going to have not just policies that we just quickly ran off there. We're going to have a whole comprehensive policy platform that's going to deal with to take one another example that's something we never talk about, never hear it in federal politics. We've had all this discussion about censoring Facebook and not censoring Facebook, it's big tech. What are we doing about the social media algorithms themselves? Those are things that are the secret private property of social media companies. They have an enormous influence on the world that we experience as we live increasingly online. We need to have a conversation about what regulation should be in place so that algorithms aren't imposed on Canadians without their consent or knowledge. Okay, uh, you AI, know, historically, I, I have to jump in, excuse me, because, you know, historically you do face an uphill battle. The People's Party has yet to elect an MP. It took the Green Party, what, nearly 30 years before it elected an MP in Elizabeth May. Do you, does your party newly formed have the staying power for that kind of timeline? You can never say those things in advance, right? I mean, as I totally agree with you, it is it is absolutely a huge mountain to climb. We were in a first-past-the-post electoral system. By the way, one of our policy platforms is to move to a modified mixed-member representation system, not to have that be something that we discuss endlessly, but to have the model in our platform. And if we're elected, we put it in place, full stop. Doesn't need, doesn't require any other uh, anything else than a decision of the Canadian public to change the system. And if we can have a, uh, if we can move to have a real conversation around some policies, I think we do have the opportunity to really change politics. You mentioned Mr. Bernier's party, which, as much as I find him and his views of the world loathsome, uh, and his utter abandonment of a more free market approach that he used to have back when he was a federal conservative for some sort of weird nationalist uh, uh, nativism, to be polite about it, I think that he has had a huge impact on the federal conservative party. The recent by-election in Manitoba, you saw the federal conservative candidate trying to out-wingnut the People's Party candidate by saying that they were the most opposed to the World Economic Forum. And anytime you hear anyone talking about the World Economic Forum as being one of the major threats facing Canadians, you know you're being conned. The WEF is the equivalent of a Kiwanis club for rich people. The idea that there's somehow this shadowy group controlling the world just is a way for politicians here at home to avoid responsibilities for the fact that we are supposed to be running this country and we need to do a better job of it, not trying to pass the buck to you know, shadowy groups of outsiders that often also take on an unfortunately nearly uh, anti-Semitic tinge that I think is a, a, a worrying part of our politics and a move towards extremism that we're mm -hmm. seeing drive up hate crimes and other acts of extremism. Let's get back to talking about policies and how to make the country better, not just uh, making stuff up and saying foolish things online for clicks. Okay, uh, Dominic Cardi, we're out of time, but uh, I know the intent is uh, to try to have some type of founding convention in 2024, so you and I will speak again. Uh, but for now, thank you for the time. Thanks so much. We've got a big mountain to climb, but I prefer that to an easy ride down. So thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Time now for our whip of the day's top stories. This is day two of the United Nations General Assembly with the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressing the UN Security Council as Russia looked on. Zelensky criticized the UN for failing to prevent conflicts and accused Russia of criminal and unprovoked aggression and with violating the UN Charter. Zelensky also called for Russia's veto power to be revoked. Veto right should not serve those who are obsessed with hatred and war. 
The Ukrainian president proposed a peace formula to restore his country's territorial integrity and global security. Zelensky also expected to address parliament in Ottawa on Friday. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau attended a series of high-level UN debates on Ukraine and climate policies. He says Canada supports key principles of the Ukrainian peace formula and demands that Russia immediately, completely and unconditionally withdraws its troops from Ukraine. We must take action to stop the tragic deaths and violence, including sexual violence, caused by this unjustifiable invasion. The Minister for Foreign Affairs, Melanie Jolie, co-hosted a talk against arbitrary detention. Both the PM and the Foreign Affairs Minister are expected to be back in Ottawa tomorrow. Unifor and Fort Canada reached a tentative deal today, averting a possible strike that could have led 5,600 auto workers to the picket lines. Union members have yet to ratify the proposed contract, neither Ford nor the union shared its contents. But if the deal goes through, the contract will be used as a draft in talks with General Motors and Stellantis. And as we told you earlier, there were nationwide protests and counter-protests across Canada over gender policies in schools today. Thousands of demonstrators pushing for the elimination of sexual orientation and gender identity curricula in Canada. And on the other side, thousands who support them and held counter-protests of their own. Crowds from both camps marched in major cities like Toronto, Ottawa and Montreal. Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow saying she stands in solidarity with the 2S LGBTQIA communities and Mark Sutcliffe of Ottawa saying he condemns any form of discrimination. And that is Primetime Politics for this Wednesday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Up next, Esther Bejan avec l'Essentiel.